Last February, I had the pleasure of attending a week-long conference with Unitarian Universalist ministers from across the country at the Asilomar Retreat Center in Monterey, California, a gorgeous facility right on the beach. Be changed was the catchphrase repeated over and over again in the promotional materials, and I was ready. I was four days into my sabbatical, and I was eager to discover a new me. And besides, the promotional materials went even further than promising change. It promised that we would be transformed by the end of the week. Wow. The opening service was led by one of my favorite UU ministers, the recently retired Jane Reska, one of the most widely respected and celebrated ministers in the movement. There was great excitement in the room as the opening song concluded and Jane stepped up to the podium and she sailed right into her talk. And in her delightfully humorous preaching style, immediately threw down the gauntlet before all the promises of transformation. She admitted that all of these promises of change made her nervous. Speaking to some 400 of her colleagues, she laid it all out. She said, looking out at all of you here in this room, I like you. And if by the end of the week, you have all transformed into something different than you are, I'm going to be left feeling pretty unbalanced. Transformation, she said, isn't all it's cracked up to be. So naturally, this caught my attention since I am what you might call big on transformation. She continued, and I paraphrase, we tell people they they come to a congregation to be changed. And we tell them that they are welcome just as they are. And we can't have both. And then... I am not looking for a religion that tells me I need a complete overhaul. I want to come here imperfect, complex, doing the best I can. And so do you accept and embrace me, or do you tell me that I have to be transformed? She went on to identify what she referred to as transformations with a small t and transformations Well, transformations with a small t are not about becoming a brand new person, an entirely changed being. Small t transformations are about maybe learning to become a little more forgiving or a little more courageous or a little more kind. You could hear a pin drop. I'm not sure what the leaders of that conference were thinking right about then, but I can tell you that for the rest of the week, the other presenters and ministers were scrambling to answer her. They went back to their sermons and their speeches and their lectures and revised and rewrote and revised again. And if they were planning to speak about transformation or change, they felt the need to clarify whether they were talking about little t transformations or big t transformations. And some were quite adamant about their positions. No, said one, I am a big t transformation person. It's our job to transform our members and our world in big, significant ways. 
the Big T transformation supporters then began to talk more energetically and more urgently about the places where justice and human rights had been denied. Think about Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all those who gave themselves generously and sacrificially to the cause of great human liberation. Think about all the ways newcomers have come in here and have been transformed. The ministers at the Institute began to debate and divide. Are you a person who favors the big T or the small T? Which are you? It was a question that echoed around Monterey all week. Jane Respa said, we can't have it both ways. We can't be both about the notion that we are places where you are accepted for who you are and places that tell you that you are in need of transformation. And so this is what led me to my theme this morning. And I've continued to chew on that question ever since. And so now it's a question I turn over to you. But we'll get back to that later in my talk. The fact is that there has been an acknowledgement and a fascination with the idea of transformation for as long as, we, as there have been human beings. We tell stories of transformation all the time. And the writer Joan Didion says, we tell stories in order to live. We tell stories of identity and remembrance. We tell stories of where we came from and where we're headed and what's expected of us and how we are changed in the process. Every country tells stories about itself. Every congregation, every family has stories that talk about their understanding of who they are and where they came from and what they've experienced and what they've done with those experiences. So just about then, I remember hearing a story about the minister, singer, and author of the book having mango thoughts in a meatloaf town, among others, Meg Barnhouse, when she summed up how stories shape who we are and who we become. She said, the most powerful shaping tale for Western culture is the story of the Exodus. The Hebrew people were enslaved, and Moses came to lead them out of slavery. They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, and then were shown into the promised land. Does that sound familiar? She says that this is the shape that we will hear in almost every story in the Western world. And if you were raised in a church where there were testimonials, are there any of you here who were raised in a church with testimonials? This is how a testimonial is built. Think infomercial, she said, late at night. So watch this. We're in Egypt now. My teeth had dark, unsightly spots. I was embarrassed and didn't know what to do. Now we're in the wilderness. I tried everything. I brushed them like mad. I used baking soda. I stopped drinking Coke and coffee. I tried speaking with my mouth mostly closed so they wouldn't be noticed, but nothing worked. I was still embarrassed. Now we're getting to the promised land. Then I found Crest 3D White Advanced Vivid Enamel Renewal Toothpaste, and I am a changed woman. I am married now with children and have a happy home life. Barnhouse says we love those stories. They're really testimonials. We're not at all happy with real stories that go more like this. 
I was a drug addict. I tried everything. I went to rehab centers. I joined a fundamentalist congregation. I tried getting off drugs and turning to shopping. I tried aromatherapy. I joined a yoga class. I tried Islam, and I'm doing a whole lot better now that I've combined all of those things. <laughs> and I think aromatherapy works. I'm not sure. You see, we want to come out the other side of these stories. We want to hear about transformation. The paradox of transformation is that it is about becoming more fully who we are rather than becoming something different. One of the major contributions of ethical culture philosophy was to separate the idea of worth and the idea of value. Worth is about who we intrinsically and potentially are. Value is about all we have, what we own, our degrees, and how much money we have in the bank. It's about how we stack up in terms of our looks, our popularity, our prestige. And when we are living from a place of value, we are solidly and woefully wandering in the desert. When we're stuck in the paradigm of value, we not only judge ourselves for how we're measuring up, we judge everyone else the same way. When things seem to go our way, when people are saying, we're doing a great job, we feel at least for that moment on top of the world. And when they criticize or belittle us, we're worthless. We live life on a hamster wheel, and round and round that hamster wheel we go, frantically, joylessly, desperately convincing ourselves that if we can just run fast enough, just work harder, fill more to-do lists, just once and for all, do it right, we'll be okay. And then there is a moment of bliss. We feel good about ourselves, but we attribute it to a fluke. And then we jump off, or we're flung off the wheel in utter exhaustion. But we're haunted again by our fear of what others might think of us, and how we might be slipping back, and so we marshal whatever strength we have, and we climb right back on that hamster wheel again, running for all it's worth. Some of us have been stuck on that hamster wheel for years, some for our whole lives. We learned early on that if we are verbal and adorable and got good grades and were entertaining to grown-ups, we'd be loved. And that's where it started. We long to jump off that hamster wheel, but fear that, it is, that if we do so, we'll, we will have lost the race. And who we are then, if not for our possessions, our bank account, our career, and our status. But the fact is that I am not going to be worthy when my girlfriend approves of me. I'm not going to be worthy if he calls me back and asks me out again. I'm not going to be worthy when I make partner. I'm not going to be worthy when people invite me to their house for dinner. I'm not going to be worthy when I get straight A's. I'm not going to be worthy when everyone thinks I'm a good parent. I am not going to be worthy when I lose 25 pounds. I'm not going to be worthy when I finally fit in. Ethical culture says that our highest purpose is found in something very different than that. It is in working to discover the conditions that make life flourish. 
the unfolding and development of our talents and our abilities and potentials to their highest degree, especially those aspects of life that build mutually supportive relations between people and that enable them to grow in their appreciation of the humanity in others. In ethical culture, we base our respect and regard for others and ourselves not on the evidence of meeting a certain set of external standards, but on an act of choice. We choose to believe that all human beings are inherently good. And any behavior to the contrary is not proof that we've somehow gone haywire with our theory. People do hurtful things in their efforts to get their needs met, but that is not evidence for any inherent badness or evil. Believing in the inherent worthiness of every person requires a certain faith in humanity. We say that every Sunday morning, that we put our faith in human goodness. Now, there is no way to prove worth. We attribute it. It requires an assumption that each of us is capable of experiencing creativity, love, and joy, and therefore we must treat others with unconditional positive regard. And it is this radical and inclusive affirmation of the worth and dignity of all people, even in the face of their obvious limitations and failings, which animates, informs, and directs almost everything we do in ethical culture. Man's chief aim, Adler said, is to be able to think well of himself. This is our lifelong quest. Ethical culture is about wholehearted living, about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. Worthiness, not value. You'll recall a few months ago that I spoke about a professor from the University of Houston who was doing amazing research on vulnerability and shame and worthiness. She said that the one thing that separates those who feel a deep sense of belonging and love in the world from those who seem to be always struggling for it is that they believe in their worthiness. They believe that they are enough, just as they are. When we're living from a place of worthiness, we let go of what other people think and give up the distortions about ourselves that cause us to hustle for our worthiness by constantly performing, perfecting, pleasing, and proving. I love to hear about this. I say it about every two years because heaven only knows I need to hear it. <laughs> we stop writing scripts for how we think our life ought to be. We stop distancing ourselves from the aspects of our lives that don't fit with that artificial vignette we've so carefully constructed. Our distorted, diminished story of ourselves we tell over and over, but then it begins to lose power and who we really are becomes more knowable. Because who we really are sits right underneath whatever mask we're wearing, whatever story we're telling about ourselves. And that is the critically important piece that gives us access to love and belonging. And we have access to it all the time, right now, sitting here, now. What we need to do is bring it to the light and let it shine. 
Ethical culture says that when we elicit this best self in others, we elicit it in ourselves. My sense is that we truly love people who are individual, who can be themselves. And yet we spend so much of our lives trying to fit in. And yet, the things that make us different often are the things that make us beautiful. And we all are, every one of us, uniquely, breathtakingly beautiful. This is the deep secret we carry within us, that there is no goal, no task to take, no one keeping score, that that which is broken is always present, whether we have a name for it or not, whether or not we are paying attention to it or not, and the final recognition that you are, that each of us, that unshakable truth that you have been here all along, is waiting for the exiled self to return. To remember the open secret of our unconditional worth and dignity, even in those moments when we doubt it most, to grow together toward the ideals that arise out of our reverence for the good is what we're trying to do here. Our founding member, Dr. Felix Adler, once eloquently invoked this mission when he said, above all, the one thought into which all I cherish most, all I most hope for and aspire to, can be compressed into this. May the humanity that is within every human be held more and more precious and be regarded with ever-deepening reverence. The vice, he said, that underlies all vices is we are held cheaply by others and far worse that in our inmost soul we think cheaply of ourselves. The invitation of ethical culture is quite simple. Come as you are, believe as you must, expect to grow and act on your values as if your actions make all the difference in the world, because they do. Come as you are and expect to grow. When we say, and we say it all the time, that Wes is a powerful center of transformation, we mean that we will provide a diverse and dynamic range of resources and programs that you can utilize to facilitate your growth to grow emotionally and intellectually and spiritually based on your own aspirations. To grow in patience and also to grow in impatient about the injustice in the world that will compel you to add your heart and your voice and your hands to the work of justice. It is up to you to determine your goals here for personal transformation. We make our life story as we go not exactly randomly, but in accordance with our values and desires that are larger and much more beautiful than any of our to-do lists. It's a running, evolving list taped to your heart. I mean to be grateful, generous, compassionate, joyful, loyal, playful, accountable, responsible, loving, whatever. And the right time to do it, to be this way, is right now. This way of being can never be accomplished perfectly, only partially, only clumsily, 
only humanly. And sometimes we choose well and sometimes we don't. We fall, we falter, and if we're lucky, we laugh and forgive ourselves and each other and we go on with the same beautiful intention. I intend to be caring and kind. I mean to be respectful. And so I surround myself here with people who will remind me every week of those principles. I was touched by a story I read recently about the author Nevada Barr, who, in addition to writing fun, easy mystery novels, also wrote a book called Seeking Enlightenment Hat by Hat. This is her Exodus story. As is her style, she started off with a snarky, cynical description of all organized religion. She had just been through a horrible divorce and moved from the West where she had grown up to Mississippi, which was a huge culture shock, beginning with each of her neighbors individually asking her, what church do you go to? Something she had always assumed was a deeply personal matter. And when she shyly began to offer something about herself, she repeatedly heard, well, bless your heart. She found her chatting, church-going neighbors talk downright silly and embarrassing. But a neighbor invited her to church one day. She said, Nevada Bar said, I had no job, no friends. Church was just something to do, a reason to get dressed. I came because I was lonely, frightened, and desperately unhappy. And when, when, she, when she went there, she got a free meal at the Bible study group, and she tried to act at least civil. She said that if there had been any other group within walking distance, the Elks or the Mooney, she might have gone there. It didn't really matter to her. And despite all her misgivings and her eye rolling and her head shaking and sarcasm she dished out, she was still accepted. She never did surrender her doubts or her skepticism, and she said she never expected to be saved. But when she went anyway, she went anyway because she knew that she was asleep at the wheel. Frittering, frittering away her precious moments of life. And so why am I telling you this? Because she went to this little church community for pretty mundane reasons, after all. I tell you this because along with our life-saving philosophy, and I don't say those words lightly because it was life-saving and continues to be life-saving for me, along with our philosophy, it reminds me of another reason we come here. It's easy to get caught up in the details of maintaining a building, raising money, doing service projects, balancing the budget, recruiting volunteers, forming committees, creating strategic plans, endlessly meeting and solving problems. And we can easily start to imagine that any one of these things is the main thing that we are all about here in this congregation. We can get distracted and forget that we are in the business of graciously and tenderly welcoming the people who come through our doors, welcoming them just the way they are. And we are in the business of helping people find whatever it is that will help them become the kind of person they are yearning to be. We don't often know what we're looking for when we come here, when we set out in search of something more in our life. It is not the fear of dying that compels people, I've discovered, to go looking for something more in their lives. It is the fear that they may not really be fully alive. Okay, so I want to throw a couple of religious terms out here, and I know that there's some 
of you who may flinch a little, but it's, I say these words only because we've allowed other people to steal their original meaning away from us. The word salvation originally meant a state of wholeness, of health. And it occurs in this lifetime when we're at peace with ourselves and in connection with others. The Hebrew word for salvation means literally to make wide or to make sufficient. That's what it means. The other word is soul. The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, which is also the word for pulse, the lifeblood, the feeling of being fully, vibrantly alive, pulsating with life. Feeling joy, feeling pain, just feeling. And it is that inner center, that internal wellspring from which our meaning flows. That's what soul means. When we are not in touch with that sense of aliveness, that wellspring, our soul. When our spirits are anesthetized, we become dull and brittle, living in a personal and private hell with no room for anybody else. Our role here is to make wide or make sufficient people's lives so that we are living into our full humanity. In the end, Nevada confessed I'll be damned if I wasn't saved. Saved in the sense, she said, that she began to live her life instead of scripting it, trying to manipulate it, rewrite it, drown it, sleep through it, or abandon it altogether by attempting to live someone else's life for them. She was saved, she said, not by some divine intervention, not by theology or philosophy, by Bible study, not by, because of the ideas or the doctrines or the hymns or the beliefs, not because she felt guilty if she missed a Sunday, not even because she found God, not by counseling or not by anything else that the church offered. It was the congregation itself, she said, that saved me. Saved me by the extraordinary power and goodness of ordinary people, men and women, old and young, caring and cantankerous, imperfect, easily wounded, sometimes defensive, full of all the faults and gifts we're heir to. Saved at last by the love and the fellowship of people no better or worse off than me. What liberated me, she said, from my tiny hill was as common as a handshake, as ordinary as hearing my name spoken by another, as simple as being asked to help serve coffee. Oh, how I wish Nevada had come here. So I'd love to know how you would answer the question of big T versus little t. My answer to the question is both. Maybe it's a cop-out, but no matter how I slice and diet, it has to be, dice it, it has to be both. For me, the both and of welcome and transformation has something to do with the kind of transformation that we talk about here. That of the bud blooming 
the zygote that becomes the wise elder. It's an unfolding kind of transformation, not an original sin to saved by grace transformation. It happens mostly quite slowly, influenced sometimes by unlikely encounters. And in hindsight, it can sometimes feel, there's another word, miraculous. And the miracle of that gives us courage to keep on choosing transformation. For me, transformation does come, and it comes from participating in this community. And here's what we can do for each other. Notice the stories that we're telling. Look for the stories that people tell about themselves. And then, if you can be brave, ask them to notice what they are saying. Sometimes it just helps to see that you are repeating the same sorrowful, disempowered story again and again. Lots of people say that only others get breaks. Any break they get is a fluke. But if you tell yourself you're a lucky person, your whole habit of attention land on different things and your whole life looks different. Congregations tell themselves story about themselves. We often tell ourselves the story that we are not a congregation that sings. We just don't, we say. But sometimes we don't sing well because we've told ourselves that story over and over again. Our stories are the filters in which we interpret and have our experience. Notice the stories we tell about ourselves. You don't have to try with your will to change your stories, but sometimes just noticing them will make it happen. Joan Didion said we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Watch the stories we tell. Let's tell ourselves the most helpful stories we can. The Exodus stories, the stories of little T and big T transformations. Your stories are precious. You are precious. The main speaker at Asilomar said that when she and her sister would walk out the door to school, they would try to turn the knob very quietly so that their mother wouldn't hear it because every single day she yelled down to them the same message. She said, go now, girls, and find your greatness. They rolled their eyes. <laughs> but truth be known, she said, they carry that message with them every day. Go now, girls, and find your greatness. And so to you, I say, go now and find your greatness.